We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Nicholas Smith, who is based here in Taiwan for the UK's Telegraph. Good evening. And Sean Su, an independent political consultant here in Taiwan. Hello. Tonight we'll be discussing fresh coronavirus concerns, the TIEX reaching new highs on the back of Taiwan semiconductor manufacturing, KMT proposed constitutional amendments that include an annual State of the Nation address to lawmakers by the President, controversy over plans by the Ministry of Culture to establish an international English language video programming platform, calls by the new power party for the government to add more national holidays, and some rather old laundry owners who have gone global with their photographs. But we'll begin with the current and former heads of state on Thursday, as well as local political figures from across party lines, all expressing their condolences on the death of former President Lee Dong-hui, who passed away at the age of 97. Now, the Taipei Veterans General Hospital announced that Lee died from septic shock and multiple organ failure at 7.24pm on Thursday. He has been hospitalised, though, for nearly six months. Now, President Tsai Ing-wen expressed her heartfelt condolences and and sympathy on behalf of all of the people of Taiwan on a post on her Facebook page in which she described Lee as the pioneer in his time and praised Lee's contribution to Taiwan's democratisation. The office of former President Ma Ying-jeou released a statement expressing Ma's sorrow over Lee's passing and also praised Lee for promoting direct presidential elections and went on to say that his contributions to Taiwan's democratisation deserve the respect of all. While former President Chen Shui-bian remembered Lee on his Facebook page in which he referred to Lee is the old captain of Taiwan who sailed the ship of democracy. And Chen Shui-bian went on to say that Lee's passing was a major loss for Taiwan's movement from authoritarianism to democracy. Lee served as Taiwan's president from 1988 to 2000. He had suffered, though, from deteriorating health in recent years, which caused him to reduce the frequency of his public appearances. Now, he was hospitalised at the Taipei Veterans General Hospital on February the 8th after choking while drinking milk. And Lee was later diagnosed with pneumonia. Now, Lee was born on January the 15th of 1923, and he was the son of a police officer in what is now New Taipei's Sanjiu district. So, Sean, leading Way passed away at the age of 97. I mean, what do you think the general public in Taiwan, remembering that there's young people who probably don't remember him and older people who will remember him, what do you think they'll remember him best for? Let's start with the older generation. Uh, older generation. Well, definitely he is considered the father of Taiwan democracy. And uh, obviously, um, there is right now, there is always, of course, some people that may have some uh, mixed feelings about uh, Li Denghui, uh, depending on which political leaning you are. But uh, definitely for the older generation, especially the Pan Greens, uh, they definitely revere him as a sort of a father figure. And um, that's why I do know a lot of, uh, especially even the youth Pan Greens, even going all the way to visit uh, where his hometown and visit his old home. And what about the young people, though? Uh, the mean, young people. Obviously, you mentioned some young people. What about young people that, you know, about 15, 16 years old, are not involved in politics? 
Oh, for that one, I would say that um, uh, during his administration, especially in 1997, he uh, reformed the education system in Taiwan. And so there was a book called Knowing Taiwan. And that really helped foster a lot of uh, Taiwan identity, especially among Taiwan youth activists. Uh, there was a countless numbers of, I'm not sure as little as 15, but I'll definitely say there was a lot of uh, Taiwanese youth activists in the Sunflower Movement and the Wald Strawberry uh, uh, Movement that have said that that was when they first started fostering that identity. Uh, I do remember that. The Knowing Taiwan book in 1997 was where a lot of uh, Sunflower and uh, Wild Strawberry uh, students actually started fostering uh, their Taiwanese identity, uh, quite a few, especially during uh, junior high school when they first started reading that book. Uh, uh, in the past, of course, uh, as we all know, um, the educational system was just focused on Chinese identity. And that happened under, again, uh, Li Denghui. So uh, I do feel that is one of their impressions if they don't really remember too much about Li Denghui. That's one of the areas. Another thing uh, that I do know is for diaspora, uh, or especially those young in Taiwan, during the latter end of the White Terror period, a lot of as, as well as um, towards the end of it, a lot of young uh, Taiwanese, uh, they had their parents that were too afraid to really m immerse them in politics. Uh, so therefore, um, those even those that weren't into politics will at least uh, remember Li Denghui as uh, some sort of a revered figure by some of their parents. And again, because he changed the education system, they'll definitely know more about Taiwan because of him. So in that way, he's left a lasting effect on everyone in Taiwan. Nicola. Uh, well, you know, I think really um, he'll be remembered for also defending Taiwan's sovereignty and giving Taiwan greater international stature and, and just really forging Taiwan's unique political identity, both dom domestically and, and internationally. Um, and the loss of someone like President Lee is even greater at a time when um, we see democracy and human rights under assault all across the world. I mean, you look at, at, at what is happening in Hong Kong right now and, and there's just been a purge of pro-democracy candidates and, and authoritarianism is really taking hold. Or even, you know, in, in the US, you have the US president who's actually going on Twitter and suggesting that the election should be postponed. So I think with, with someone like President Lee, who was um, um, such a titan of democracy and, and really, a, a, you know, a, a politician who knew what he believed in and was prepared to defend his citizens, um, that's just that just seems to be to be such a a rare phenomenon now in today's world in today's politics and and that kind of uh, we're seeing we're really seeing the death of of that kind of conviction politics and so I think um, on the wider scale his, his loss will be felt a lot more acutely for that reason and sure Nicola mentioned the U.S. there I mean how do you think the U.S. will remember Lee uh, definitely the with with a lot of. Um they definitely would revere him in, in many ways because uh, easily uh, Li Denghui had the opportunity to become dictator for life of Taiwan, but he chose another path. And I think that's something that especially a lot of uh, the older generation, 1.5 or 2.0 generation in Taiwan will definitely remember. One thing that I do remember in my time is uh, when I was growing up in New York City, during 1997 at the Taiwan Center, they had, uh, 1996, they had furious debates about the 
election. And I remember a lot of people being very, uh, especially the Pan Greens, being very wary of Li Denghui, uh, thinking that, oh, he's just another, you know, dictator. He's going to, uh, you know, hold, uh, be in power all this time. And then towards 2000s, just four years later, um, their attitude about uh, towards him completely changed. Uh, you could noticeably, you would hear people far more, uh, they would respect him far uh, much more than they used to. Uh, that kind of transition, I don't think, will be forgotten for quite some time. And, uh, of course, his actions will also uh, brought a lot of backlash from, uh, for instance, those abroad, like Chinese Americans or uh, people from China. And we can tell just by uh, the kind of language they used uh, about uh, Li Denghui's passing, calling him words like he might disappear in the dustbin of history, splittist, which is very different where you hear uh, people all over the globe, especially diaspora, saying that he is the father of democracy. He is why Taiwan is here today. And the way it is. And we'll move on now. And there were renewed coronavirus concerns this week after the Central Epidemic Command Centre reported new imported coronavirus cases and a possible domestic infection. Now, the imported cases this week came from Lesotho, South Africa, Hong Kong, the Philippines and the United States. And that saw the number of confirmed coronavirus cases here in Taiwan since the pandemic began late last year increase to 467. However, the Epidemic Command Centre has yet to classify a case involving a Thai migrant worker who tested positive for the virus just days after he returned to Thailand as a domestic infection. And that means no domestically transmitted cases, as we're recording this show, have been reported since April the 12th. Now, Health Minister Chen Shijong said all 189 people thought to have come into contact with the Thai worker at his workplace and in his dormitory here in Taiwan have tested negative for the virus and its antibodies. However, the Epidemic Command Centre says it's continuing to search for other individuals who may have had contact with a migrant worker outside side of his workplace. And needless to say, the rise in new imported cases and the scare over a possible domestic case raised public concerns about the situation. And that led to renewed calls this week by the Dean of the National Taiwan University's College of Public Health for the government to follow the so-called Iceland model and offer people arriving in Taiwan either a test or two weeks in quarantine. So Nicola, we've talked about this on the show when you've been on before, this so-called Iceland model. Obviously, heightened concern about the coronavirus, but do you think offering people a simple test or 14 days in quarantine should be a question, or do you think you'd feel safer if people that arrived here, wherever they came from, simply had to go into quarantine for 14 days? Well, personally, um, I'd feel safer if people went into quarantine for 14 days because that's what's, that is what's been working for, for months now. Um, I mean, that's my personal preference. I'm not, I'm not an expert. I'm not a scientist. Um, and I, I think throughout this pandemic, what I've really appreciated about Taiwan is that they've really um, let their actions be led by science and not by politicians. And I, I think, you know, everyone's on edge. That's natural. We're in the middle of a global pandemic. We, we might not even be in the middle. You know, it, it, who knows how long it will last. Um, people are nervous. But at the same time, the Taiwanese authorities have been doing a, a great job. And, and the fact that they've caught all of these um, infections coming into the country, I, I think, you know, is a testament to, to the system working. Um, and we also know that tests aren't always reliable. So if you give um, people the choice of a test or a quarantine, nobody really wants to do quarantine unless they're a complete hermit. Um, so, you know, I think people would probably opt for the test and I, I, I would feel uncomfortable with um, whether it was accurate 
enough. Of course, Health Minister Chen Shijong did say that this week. He said the current mandatory 14-day quarantine for all arrivals is helping safeguard the country because of the timing of the disease's incubation period. Now, according to the Health Minister, timing is very important because you just can't test at any time and hope for accurate results. And he says that results are more accurate if testing is done two days before and seven to nine days after the development of symptoms, as tests done too early may take place in the incubation period and produce false negative results. So, sure, there you go, the health minister says testing, eh, we do it, but also quarantine at the same time due to concerns about test results. Uh, I actually share uh, a lot of concerns about giving people the option to take uh, tests because currently the tests they are using is the polymerase uh, polymerase chain react- uh, uh, reaction, I believe. And PCR testing just isn't accurate because if people get infected on the flights, it takes days to show up, uh, up to seven to nine days to develop symptoms. So uh, that, that kind of antibody testing isn't going to be very accurate. Uh, and so... As Nicola said, uh, the quarantine is a system that works. Plus, uh, you know, most people in quarantine will get daily fever checks, symptom checks, and so on. And that means less money is wasted on something that doesn't always work. Uh, and we, you know, and more more effort is used on a system that does work, which is quarantine. It's it's foolproof if people develop, uh, even if they're, um, even if they don't show symptoms, uh, it still works because they're not spreading it to other people. And Nicola, of course, there's been also been talk of like testing everybody that arrives in the country, even if they go to quarantine. Yeah, that's right. But, you know, again, I think um, we just have to trust the experts on this. And I I did interview former Vice President Chen a few months ago, and and we spoke a little bit about the testing. And and his view at that point was that um, we didn't speak specifically about people coming into the country, but in general about mass testing, that his his view was that Taiwan didn't need that at, at at the moment that it wouldn't be an efficient use of um, resources and that it wouldn't be an efficient way to control the virus. And and Taiwan really has been a model for the world in the way it's combined different methods of controlling the virus. And and it really does remain one of the very few countries now that, that has survived this this virus relatively unscathed you know you're we're, we're now looking at Hong Kong which was doing so well and and um, due to various lapses with with quarantine um, it's now uh, the, the virus is spiking in Vietnam as well we, we're not sure how it came into the country but I think I can see from the the business point of view why um, they would prefer to have the testing option um, and just get on with with business quicker um, and, and kind of move the economy forward. But it's just about finding that right balance between you know allowing the, the virus in to run rampant or to to um, kind of opt for for the more business friendly model. So, Sean, obviously, money being put over people's health here by certain people. Uh, I believe so. Um, there's a lot of pressure, I believe, from business groups uh, hoping to get more people in. Uh, of course, we all heard about how uh, even major uh, conferences like Computex was cancelled. And Computex itself is a, a expo that brings in billions of dollars. So, of course, the government is going to be under pressure to find ways to open up. However, um, I'm not sure if this administration would bode well if suddenly there was a large, uh, you know, uh, large 
surge infection locally, I think that's going to be more problematic. I do hope that uh, you know uh, Taiwan stays the course, uh, listens to the scientists, listens to the epidemiologists, and not the businessmen. As we've seen, uh, the United States when they opened up, uh, oh, I, I'm almost at a loss of words of how to describe the situation in the USA. But we don't want that and opening up. In, in any way uh, is just ins- unsafe and not worth it, I think. And in some good news this week, the Taiwan Stock Exchange shot to new historic highs as it breached the 13,000-point mark at one point. That, as most other global markets, were fluctuating between losses and minor gains and remained the flap over US-China trade tensions and also other tensions between those two countries. Now, the reason for the new highs was, according to market watchers, all related to Taiwan's semiconductor manufacturing's American depository receipts and news that Intel's 7-nanometer development has been postponed. And I spoke with Bloomberg writer Tim Colpen about the relationship between the TIEX and TSMC. Good evening, Tim. Gavin, good to talk to you. So what is the relationship between Taiwan's semiconductor manufacturing and the TIEX, which has been going great guns this week? It has had a fantastic week so far. I mean, uh, it, it went up limit uh, for, for a while there. And that is because of, I guess, the sudden realization by many investors, uh, not just locally, but globally, that this is a powerhouse of a company. It is, I've argued for many years, it's the world's most important technology company because TSMC products are in pretty much every device. And what's interesting now is that TSMC accounts for 29% of the TIEX. Uh, that's 10 times larger than its nearest uh, rival, which is actually MediaTek, which is actually one of its clients. And, and Foxconn, or Hanhai, is is even smaller than that. So uh, it's, it's such a powerhouse, and it's really the one thing that's driving the TIEX recently. And, of course, the TIEX reached new highs, and Taiwan's semiconductor manufacturing shares also reached new highs this week, basically on news that Intel's 7-nanometer development was being postponed, which apparently is good news for TSMC. Yeah, it is. It's good news on a couple of areas. The first is that it's just proof that TSMC is, is better than anybody else. TSMC really has two rivals. One is Samsung, the other is Intel. Samsung's doing pretty well, not as well as TSMC, but there's certainly no slouch, and I think they'll be a rival for many years. Intel had been trying to get into the business of uh, foundry work, as in doing stuff for other companies, but also they really uh, rely on their own uh, manufacturing technology to ship their own chips, uh, which are going to PCs and servers and stuff like that. But the, the revelation and the announcement last week from Intel was that, whoops, uh, we're going to be delayed again. And that was one part of the news. But the other was that they then admitted that maybe they won't have to manufacture all of their own stuff. They're one of the few chip makers left that manufactures their own designs. And they hinted that they might outsource. Now, they didn't necessarily name TSMC, but there's no one else out there who can do what they do. So that naturally means people are thinking TSMC. So investors this week are very excited about the idea that not only is TSMC truly the best, but they may get orders from Intel. That's why people are excited, and I think that excitement will stay for a little while. And, of course, there's also been news recently that that TSMC could open a plant in America. Yes. So uh, in about May, they, uh, as I predicted, uh, they went and made the announcement that they will open a factory in Arizona, 
Uh, they uh, told us the numbers. It'll be $8 billion over about a decade, which sounds nice, but it's actually not the investment value. It's the amount of money they'll spend, including operations like staffing and electricity and and paying the lunch lady, that kind of stuff. But still, it's a big number. Uh, and that really is good news for the American government, for the state of Arizona, for the presidency of Donald Trump, for everybody in America to make it look like America is, uh, you know, getting back into the business by having such an important powerhouse like TSMC, giving them that vote of confidence. So I think that's good news for a lot of people. Kind of good news for TSMC too, I think. So what about TSMC's rivals there? Because of course, Honhai is going to open a plant in America as well. Yeah, I mean, Honhai is not really a rival. I guess they're a partner in the industry. They're a partner. They're, they're rivals on the TIEX in terms of investor love, but in terms of the businesses they're in, they don't really cross over. They did announce the Wisconsin plan a few years ago, and they're, they're building the factory. It's, you know, they have a shell up, and it's doing some stuff now, but it's falling well short of the big, leading-edge technology uh, center that they were pretending it would be. I think anyone with a bit of mouth knew that it wasn't going to be all that Terry Gore made out to be, but everybody was willing to hear these sweet words from, uh, from Foxconn, and they went ahead with it. Uh, but, yeah, I, I don't think that it's going to be all the things that those cracked up to be, and I think people need to manage their expectations on what Foxconn's really going to do in America. So, basically, TSMC could be grabbing the headlines from Foxconn Honhai vis-à-vis its, its work in America. Yes, I think so. I think uh, the American people, uh, American bureaucrats and, and politicians need to understand that TSMC and Foxconn are very different companies. Uh, yes, they're both tech companies. Yes, they're both suppliers to Apple. But one is in the business of doing very high-end semiconductor manufacturing, which is really, really difficult stuff. The other is in the business of uh, doing operations. And it's not easy what, what Foxconn does, but it's very labor-intensive. And it's, it's uh, kind of the assembly part of the process of, of putting together an iPhone. They're very different, and uh, one of these industries and businesses could do very, very well for America and really raising its, uh, its game in terms of technology manufacturing. The other, not so much. That was me in conversation with Bloomberg writer Tim Colton. And in local political news this week, KMT chairman Johnny Jung announced that his party is set to propose a series of constitutional amendments in the coming weeks. And according to Jung, those amendments will require the president to give an annual State of the Nation address to the legislative UN and that the premier's appointment be approved by lawmakers. So, Sean, should President Tsai Ing-wen give an annual, or whoever is the president, give an annual State of the Nation address to lawmakers in the legislative UN? And should the premier be appointed by lawmakers instead of solely by the president? Uh, personally, I think that it isn't bad to have the president address uh, the legislature or, you know, the public in general more often. That's fine. Uh, I I don't really see too much of a negativity uh, of that. I'm not talking about just Tyen, of course, um, any other future president. Uh, obviously, uh, the opposition party will use that as an opportunity to screw the president. Uh, but, you know, uh, in many other nations, they do have a State of the Union addresses, so it doesn't hurt. Now, I might have different opinions regarding uh, the nomination of the premier, though.
And what are those opinions? <laughs> okay, so um, I do, if memory serves, in 1997 uh, or during that period, uh, they did nominate uh, leg- uh, they, the legislator Yuan did nominate the premier uh, or confirm the premier, sorry. Um, but the thing is, uh, since then, I guess because uh, the KMT thought that they would, that the DPP would win legislative majority, they decided, okay, so uh, you know what, uh, uh, you know, let's remove that power from the legislative yet. So it's kind of a flip around sort of thing. And now all of a sudden, because I believe the KMT is trying to be more of an opposition party, trying to learn how to get there. They're trying to, so they're trying to find different things in order to sort of uh, demand that the DPP must change or find some sort of issue that they can really rally up some of their supporters or at least, you know, uh, posture themselves as if they are, uh, you know, doing something. And Nicola, the President, State of the Nation Address... Yeah, I mean, I, I think, why not? It's an important part of the accountability and democratic process, you know, um, to have to justify your actions every year and take questions and take flack. And it's it's uh, a good time to, to debate the issues. I don't see any problem with that. Um, on the premier issue, I, I, I do agree with Sean that I, I do wonder if the KMT would be proposing that if they were in power. Um, just now, it, it just seems to be um, quite a counterproductive move. I think you know, if if you have a premier and and a president who end up vastly disagreeing with each other, then you're just going to stymie the whole political process as well. If if there's someone that the president just can't work with, who's been um, nominated and elected by the legislature, I, it, it, yeah, I, I I don't see. Um, a pressing need for that just now in Taiwan. So I, I'm kind of questioning why they're they're proposing that just now. They're proposing it now because a poll by My Formosa showed that 71.5% of respondents back the idea of an annual State of the Nation address by the President, while 62.8% support a proposal that the President's nomination for the post of Premier be approved by the Legislature. My Formosa also has an interesting history, uh, especially its founder. I forget the name right now, but uh, being a member that I believe almost was kicked out of the DPP, but then on hold, uh, having been sort of a critic of the Thai administration. Uh, furthermore, um, I've looked into My Formosa polls in the past. Uh, some of them were a little bit inaccurate uh, in predicting who might win and so forth. So I do have questions about how My Formosa conducted this poll. Uh, I haven't been able to find the original paper uh, yet, so I don't know if it was very scientific or not. Mm. But, uh, you know, it is interesting that in the past, the KMT, even uh, ha- uh, Han Guoyu, was really mad at my Formosa polls. Uh, later, you know, o- I think we even wanted to go to court about it, but only later uh, uh, claiming that the founder of my Formosa had apologized to him. Of course, you know, that's what he said. Now, uh, traditionally, the KMT does not like more my Formosa polls. I do think there's something up when you have uh, uh, Johnny Chang, uh, you know, uh, suddenly choosing it, you know, when historically they've always been against those polls. So I do think there's some political opportunism here. Anyway, we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials.
Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and the Ministry of Culture on Wednesday suddenly withdrew a controversial plan to commission the public television service to establish an international English language video programming platform. Now, the sudden move came after three top network executives resigned earlier this week after the PTS Board of Directors approved an initial proposal for the so-called international video platform. Now, the programming platform was announced by the Ministry of Culture earlier this month when it touted an international digital communication program that it said would create an English language platform to offer shows that introduced Taiwan to the world. However, they didn't really say much about what these shows would be, but what did happen was the original 4 billion NT budget suddenly ballooned to 5.8 billion NT, and well, certain people on the PTS board questioned why the amount of budget had got so big when no concrete plans had been put forward. Now, the project has also faced criticism because, well, there were people arguing that it was solely aimed at getting media outlets, especially an independent one, as in the PTS network, to basically broadcast government propaganda to English language viewers. So, Sean, do you think the government was trying to pull a fast one there with PTS and get it to broadcast its propaganda, or do you think there was some method to their madness, we'll call it, for the sake of words? Well, they did say they wanted to give all that money for an international video platform with quote-unquote themes related to Taiwan. They weren't very clear on what it is, which is why it's going to be, you know, it's going to cause a lot of speculation, both positive and negative. I do think that it's important for the government to maintain an arms, uh, not an arms, it's maintain a long distance away from PTS because PTS is one of those few channels in Taiwan that is basically neutral. However, I do have also issues with the amount of money as well. That, uh, that amount of money is kind of uh, silly to me because uh, as a millennial, um, who still watches TV that much anymore, right? So I know they're going to rebroadcast that on YouTube, right? And if they do, uh, well, if they do rebroadcast that on YouTube, you know, there's already plenty of YouTubers that are doing exactly this. They're definitely going to be far better programs made by, you know, professionals like, you know, the Discovery Channel uh, and the National Geographic Channel. They're definitely much better uh, uh, global uh, organizations that are professionals at this, uh, especially in English. PTS should be kept towards what it's best at, which is educational and uh, public shows based on Taiwan. So Nicola, Sean mentioned the Discovery Channel and National Geographic could put together better shows than PTS, or maybe the government could think about using the, the young people on the interweb to go to night markets and eat stinky tofu. I mean, is, is, is yeah. somebody eating stinky tofu in a night market going to attract worldwide attention to Taiwan or would like properly well-made documentaries that cost quite a bit of money do a better job? I think you need a bit of both. Um, I'm all in favour of young people in the interweb. Um, I think the stinky tofu night markets has maybe been a bit overdone. You don't want cliches and you just, you know, my fears is that you just don't want NAF programmes to promote Taiwan because one of the, I love Taiwan but one of the things that drives me crazy is that it just doesn't know how to promote itself very well um, abroad and uh, you know I, I, because of um, the pandemic my husband and I spent two weeks just travelling around Taiwan and it, it was amazing and we just saw so many beautiful sites and, and just found so many interesting places but it was all just from randomly finding things on blogs or speaking to friends and and it's it just seems there's no kind of concerted campaign for Taiwan to really 
push its merits and all of its, you know, all the things that makes it really attractive and beautiful to the outside world. So I think you need a combination of um, kind of well-made documentaries that would appeal to um, perhaps older generations on more traditional channels um, like, yeah, Dis- Discovery or um, just uh, that have more of a kind of reach for the high-end travellers who would, would come here. But also you need to combine that with, with new... Um, just just the way that, as Sean said, young people absorb our communications now or, or entertainment, um, they're not going to be necessarily watching the Discovery Channel. Um, it's going to be more about YouTube or Netflix. Um, I think Taiwan just needs a lot more creativity in the way it promotes itself um, outside. And also it does need, I think it needs some outside help because it needs to understand what international audiences are looking for as well as the domestic audience. So I think there'd be a, there could be a great collaboration between um, Taiwanese professionals and um, international professionals who maybe understand um, more of how the global audience would react to to Taiwanese promotions as well. And of course, Sean, of course, the presidential office opened its doors, didn't it, recently, last year, to some influencers on the interweb, from the interweb, on the interweb, whatever you call it. I'm way too old to know what they're called. And, of course, they let them sleep there in the presidential building, and then they went away and made videos. Obviously, this is... But this is attracting a certain niche of people rather than a lot of people. Obviously, 45-year-olds aren't going to watch their videos. No, uh, yes, 45-year-olds are not going to be watching their videos, but that said, uh, a lot of millennials will. Uh, but what the other thing is, I don't think that campaign cost 5 billion NT. Uh, you know, and plus, there's tons of YouTubers that live in Taiwan that are doing these, again, for free. So they're doing it to promote themselves and what have you. So I think maybe a better allocation of money is really the key here. As Nicola said, uh, working with... Um, she said she was traveling throughout Taiwan. I agree. I mean, uh, I, read, I was recently in Hualien. Uh, basically, every week I've been in Hualien. And I found all these ma- amazing restaurants, amazing uh, places, amazing stores. And all of that was basically through a lot of research. If maybe, you know, coordination with the Taiwan Tourism Bureau that could help build some things. I do know for a fact that Taiwan has just recently put money uh, in the last couple of years under the Thai administration into schools and whatnot to sort of build a future Taiwan wave. See, this isn't just a one thing that you could just put on YouTube and fix, you know, or have PTS, you know, do an international video platform. That's not going to work. They're not going to compete with YouTube and win. What they need to do is build up uh, uh, an exportable culture. And I do know that South Korea built this up in the 1980s and 1990s by attracting a lot of students to get into music, to get into theater, to get into drama, to, to travel around the world to see how, you know, who makes the best, uh, uh, you know, telenovelas. And then they incorporated that into their culture for exports. Uh, and that really helped make Korea, uh, you know, one of the places to go and visit. So their tourism has shot up uh, as well. So Taiwan needs to do use a multi-pronged approach. I personally feel uh, this 5 billion NT into PTS is sort of a, a waste of money and not a smart uh, attempt uh, at it. So, Nicola, mm-hmm. instead of K-pop, T-pop. Well, I mean, you did have T-pop, um, you know, a few a, a few decades ago. That, that, was, that, was, that was simply called uh, Mando Pop. Uh, <laughs> no, but Taiwan, Taiwan um, was playing a much bigger 
um, cultural role internationally a few years ago in the way it's been explained to me that that um, it, it just wasn't there wasn't enough investment in in um, cultural projects um, and then k-pop took over and I think that's something that um, Taiwan has sought to address in a way I mean it has in the past few years at least promoted itself as a film location and and that kind of all came around because um, uh, Tom Cruise wanted to film one of the Mission Impossibles here I've, I've lost track now and it was so bureaucratically difficult to do that that he moved to Shanghai and that was like a, a, a hugely disappointing moment and that's why now um, you have a, a specifically um, Taiwanese film body that will promote Taiwan as a location for films and I, I think really there could be a lot more promotion again of um, Taiwanese pop culture is huge um, you know and I think in the age where you've got Netflix um, that has so many like such a, a range of of um, programming from all around the world that that's something that Taiwan could really exploit more and you know promote more of its shows and its its artists and, and, and that does need financial investment. Anyway, there was talk of more national holidays this week after new power party chairman Xu Yongming called on the government to add seven such holidays. Those ones should be re- added, he said, to replace the ones cancelled when the 40-hour workweek policy was implemented on January the 1st of 2016. Now, the cancelled holidays were January the 2nd, the March 29th Youth Day, Teachers' Day on September the 28th, Taiwan Retrocession Day on October the 25th, Chiang Kai-shek's birthday on October the 31st, Sun Yat-sen's birthday on November the 12th, and the December 25th Constitution day holiday. Now, speaking to reporters on Monday of this week, Shu basically laid out his party's ideas for new holidays, and they were January the 2nd, the day after New Year's Day, April the 7th, Freedom of Speech Day, Earth Day on April the 22nd, Teachers Day on September the 28th, and a December the 12th, Human Rights and Kaohsiung Incident Memorial Day. So, Sean, I mean, we all have a day off, mate, but I mean, do you think the MPP is going a bit far, calling for the basically the Freedom of Speech Day and Earth Day to be declared national holidays? I think that they're trying to push forward to a direction while uh, while also appealing to uh, some of the youth in their base by uh, highlighting some keywords. Do I really think that the NPP believes uh, some of those proposed holidays will actually go through? No, I think they're just sort of offering some suggestions. Uh, however, uh, I, I think it's also sort of a labor rights issue because they're trying to pressure the DPP, especially on the DPP's promise to restore the seven days, uh, the seven national days off. Uh, personally, in terms of the holidays themselves, um, why not Christmas? Why not some economic holidays too? Uh, you know, you could also factor that into. Although I personally believe labor rights and uh, human rights day and all those things are extremely important. Uh, you know, it, it's not so easy, especially when the ruling administration has to contend contend with business interests. And if the NPP were in power uh, one day, I think that they would have to weigh that as well. And that's something that, uh, you know, on a wish list, sure, we can have all these uh, fantastic days off. Who doesn't want another day off? But uh, again, a lot of businesses will not necessarily be happy with this. Nicola, do you think they have Earth Day, national holiday? Why not? I mean, I just, yeah, I think the more holidays, the better. Everyone works too hard. And, you know, Taiwanese are very hardworking people. So I think they deserve a day off for whatever reason. Um, I'm all in favour. Obviously, you won't be invited to any chamber events for the coming future, will you? No. 
Anyway, before we go this week, a rather elderly couple from Taichung who owned a laundromat and a dry cleaning service in the Holy Township there have become a global Instagram hit this week after they modelled their clothing that had been piling up in their store for many, many years. Now, 83-year-old Zhang Wenji and his wife, 84-year-old Xu Shou Yi, have had their Instagram photos appear in print on online pages of the New York Times, CNN, the BBC, Vogue, Vogue, there you go, People Magazine, Esquire and the UK. Telegraph to name but a few. Now, the couple have been donning the clothes after their grandson sought ways to help them. Well, basically, they had to relieve boredom because the coronavirus pandemic, well, they had taken away all their customers. So there was this lovely elderly couple sitting in their laundromat with nothing to do. Now, the laundromat, called the Want Show Laundry, had actually been open for 70 years. And, of course, it had amassed a whole heap of unclaimed clothing in that time. And their enterprising grandson came up with the idea that they should simply model some of those clothes because, after all, they were clean because, of course, they'd been cleaned in the laundry, albeit many, many years ago. So, Nicola, I believe the Telegraph's coverage of the couple adorned with your byline. It was indeed. Yeah, no, I love that story. I love that couple. It was, it's just what everybody needed. Um, there's been so much bad news all over the world that it's such a tonic to have this very heartwarming story about, you know, an older couple who finds a new lease of life um, and what I, I really enjoyed about it was that there was, they were so taken aback by how it took off and, and how popular they'd become around the world. They, they couldn't quite believe it. And their their grandson, Rafe, told us that um, they'd be getting lots of messages from people um, from many different countries saying how much it had cheered them up during the pandemic. And I think, you know, everyone needed a good news story and, and good for them. And Sean, you know the grandson? Uh, actually, no, I don't know the grandson, but I have some mutual friends, it turns out. Uh, I actually, I think this is actually part of something that's, uh, he's a representative, Reef Chang, of a change in Taiwan. Uh, when I first saw the images um, online and Instagram myself, uh, I knew instantly that obviously the octogenarians here, his grandparents did not dress him, dress themselves that way. Uh, for instance, um, all over the internet, people are describing uh, the dress style, their dress style as fresh. I mean, there's one where uh, his uh, grandfather is wearing a a suit that has rolled up sleeves, a tie belt, which people thought was really, really brave. Uh, and there's a couple, um, his grandma and his grandpa wearing Chuck Taylor shoes, matching Chuck Taylors. Uh, I think this actually comes from uh, Reef Chang, who is 31 right now. And he actually is a graduate from the Taipei National University of the Arts in Arts Administration and Management. And for his undergraduate, he did, um, I I think a creative independent, a creative industry management. So, uh, as you know, for a couple of years ago, I think this 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 matches uh, what's happening in Taiwan in general, which where uh, stylists uh, Taiwan streetwear has been uh, exploding with a lot of people really, really, uh, you know, uh, making a name for themselves all over the world. Uh, Taiwanese companies like Wisdom or Goopy, Alice Lawrence, and so forth. Uh, and this all came out at the same time where I think a lot of young designers, especially at the Young Designers Expo, Yodex, uh, I noticed, I remember like when I first went uh, over a decade ago, and a lot of the fashions and stuff of these students, you know, uh, this was their thesis, this was their dissertation, essentially, um, wasn't really that inspired. But uh, circa 2013, 2011, it really started showing. And Reef Chang happens to fall into that. And as a, uh, and I do believe he will have a fantastic career as a stylist. 
just because uh, he made uh, his grandparents look really, 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 really awesome. Yeah, Nicola, do you think, do you think anyone actually left clothes there or CDs and go and demand their clothes back? Obviously, have matching pairs of Chuck Taylors. Yes. That was a bit of a coincidence, wasn't it? <laughs> Well, I think they, they did wear some of their own clothes. Um, but, um, the, I mean, Rafe said to us that um, some people had tried to come back and, and reclaim their clothes. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that was his intention. You know, he, he, he wanted people to reclaim their clothes. And why wouldn't you? But I think, you know, what I really love about this story in particular is that this old couple, I think they, they, re- they also represent, you know... Um, not just in Taiwan, but but just um, a generation of of older people who feel really excluded from society and who just don't quite know their place now. And and you know they're, they they've they've kind of lived their their lives in kind of more traditional sense, and and they get to their eighties and and I guess they're wondering how to how to how they fit in and and how they fit in with this kind of with um, modern media and and the social media and and I I just think this is it really enlivened them again and just gave them a sense of purpose and that's what I really liked about it. And on a sense of purpose, that's where we'll leave it here on Taiwan This Week This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Nicola Smith. Thanks for having me. And Sean Su. Thank you. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.